I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. As we go through this next season, uh, following the narrative lectionary, we will be spending our time through Lent in, uh, in the Gospel of Mark. And this presents particular challenges to preachers, as Pastor Dust and I have already discussed, especially in the Gospel of Mark, because we get these really big chunks of the Gospel of Mark. And a lot happens, even in 20 or so verses. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 45, as we pick up the second half of the first chapter this week, and as we continue to walk with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, as we pay attention to who he is, what he is doing, and the call that he offers. But before we read Mark 1, 21 through 45, let's pray together. Our Lord and loving Father, may your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, our utmost concern, in whose name we pray, amen. Mark 1, 21 through 45. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who is possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, The people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many people who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was filled with compassion. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The estimated Powerball jackpot for this week was over $300 million. And I think by the end of the week, it was somewhere above $330 million. Would anyone here like $300 million? Just curious. A few hands. My family is in town for the weekend, and as we were sitting around, we couldn't help but to curiously wonder, what would happen if we won? Now, of course, to win, you'd have to buy a ticket in the first place. But still, imagine if we could win without even having to worry about buying a ticket. What would happen if you won $300 million? Your mind begins to wander and you start to daydream. And and I don't know if I even have really a concept of, of that amount of finance. I mean, I know our student loans would be instantly evaporated, car payments would cease to exist, and the church building project could be instantly funded at the drop of a hat. So I would note, if you do win the lottery, just keep in mind a tithe for that. Now, I'm not actually advocating, in fact, I'd give a little bit of warning against the lottery, in part because for many, uh, gambling can become a dangerous addiction. But there's another reason that I would caution against it. If you won the lottery, it could ruin your life. There are stories that you can find of people who have said, how winning the lottery ruined my life. And of course, we would all think it wouldn't ruin my life because I know what I'm doing. And everyone who said the lottery ruined their life said that they thought the exact same thing before they won. How winning the lottery ruined my life. Here's a glimpse of how that could be possible. If you won the lottery, who would you tell? You'd probably try to tell no one. Because once the word gets out, everyone would be coming to you. Because you now have the power to fix whatever problem they have financially. Now, it doesn't sound so bad. You definitely have the means. But can you imagine if you chose not to help someone, the hatred that they would have for you, knowing that you had the ability to fix their problem, but you willingly chose not to? Can you imagine the amount of people who you know, and even those who you don't know, who would be coming to you unceasingly, exhaustingly, coming with desperate requests for you to fix their problem. Now, there's always going to be some people in our lives who care about us for who we are. But then there's a different group that they might care about you for who you are now as an acquaintance. But if you suddenly had $300 million, they might care a lot less about you as a person and a lot more about what you can do for them. And so you would become useful only to the point of your utility function for what you can do for someone else. Now, the power of Christ is far beyond the power of money because the kingdom of God is not dependent upon currency. But the analogy might be helpful for us in understanding some of Jesus' behavior as captured especially in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus tells people not to tell what happened. Jesus is so overwhelmed by the amount of people coming to him, entire villages coming to the door, seeking him out in the desert places, that Jesus cannot get away from this constant barrage of desperate requests. Jesus is like someone who won the divine lottery and the people flood towards him. And not always to hear who he is or what he has to teach, but simply to bring themselves to him for what he can do for them. Now there's a place for that too, and these are signs of the kingdom. But in verse 21 to verse 45, you notice that we start and end in two very different places. At the beginning of this part of the of Gospel of Mark, Jesus is actively engaged in his teaching ministry. 
He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and spreading the word about this. And people are amazed by his teaching. For he taught as one with authority. This was a whole new year in a certain sense. A fresh beginning for what teaching in the synagogue could look like. And people were excited to hear Jesus, to have Jesus explaining to them the Old Testament in a way that made so much sense that they couldn't believe that they had never heard it this way before or thought of it themselves. Jesus is teaching, and he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, just as John the Baptist had prepared the way for him to do. Jesus teaches with authority, and people are drawn to him. They're drawn to the person of Jesus with authority, and they're drawn to the teaching of Jesus with that authority. But soon enough, Jesus demonstrated another type of authority, which is a sign of the kingdom that he came to proclaim. His divine authority over demons, over illness, and a little later on, even over the weather. Jesus has all of this authority far beyond the power of finance or commerce. These are all important signs of the kingdom, signs of healing. But the signs are not the kingdom itself. Pretty soon, the people coming to Jesus are so interested in the signs and in the healing and what, they, and what Jesus can do for them that their attention simply can't be as focused on the kingdom itself or the person or the message that's being proclaimed. Jesus, like someone who won the divine lottery, is viewed by the masses for his utility function, and not who he was. The crowds came to him because of what they heard that he could do for them, not necessarily because they understood who Jesus was. The message of the kingdom The promise of the forgiveness of sins, the significance of repentance, and the redemptive salvation of the world that Jesus said he was sent to preach is getting drowned out over the requests of healing for leprosy, paralyzation, demon possessions, and everything else under the sun. Might I add, I don't blame the crowds or multitudes in the villages from Capernaum to Galilee for coming to Jesus in this way. Put yourself in their shoes. I mean, if we heard of someone who could heal us of all of our diseases, all of the things that doctors can't fix, I think we'd be headed there in droves and we'd be bringing people with us. Imagine if you heard of someone who was instantly, with a word or with a touch, was curing people of cancer, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, arthritis, anxiety, depression, you name it, there's people being healed of it. I think we'd be loading up the church bus to bring everyone we could to be healed. Loved ones, family members, all those who are in need of a healing touch. And we'd be right to do so, for these are signs of the kingdom. But could we maintain the appropriate curiosity and interest in this mysterious person who was doing the healing? And would we stick around long enough to hear their message and their teaching that was being offered? Or would we get what we were looking for and then be on our way, spreading the news of what could be done for us and not necessarily having heard the full story? As we enter into a new year, as 2016 has already begun, I wonder if this passage from the Gospel of Mark in any way should shape or form how we want to enter in our life of devotion and discipleship and prayer. What prayer life do you want to shape this year? Is it one of joining the masses in coming up to Jesus, of praying to God only all of our requests? Or is it one that we want to just spend time building a relationship with a person, in hearing his teaching, in listening for his voice in the still and quiet places of our life? Is there a time in our prayer life where it's not just us asking for requests, but time to simply just sit and listen? Listen to what Jesus might be speaking to us, 
Or do our requests drown out our time to listen? The multitudes are certainly drowning out Jesus. And so he retreats to a solitary place. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now this solitary place, it's worth noting the word that's behind this. If you were here last week, we talked about the wilderness how good things and bad things happen in the wilderness. Jesus was baptized in the wilderness, and he was also tempted in the wilderness. God's people wandered in the wilderness, and they also received the Ten Commandments in the wilderness. Good things and bad things happen in the wilderness, and the wilderness is a place that shapes and forms our witness. Jesus goes off into the wilderness This solitary place is the same word for wilderness, heremos, which is where we get our word for hermit. A quote comes to mind, kind of a strange old hermit. And this is Jesus in his solitary place. Why does Jesus need to retreat to a solitary place? He goes to pray, to spend time, uninterrupted time, with the Father. Jesus spends time in this solitary place, this wilderness, to strengthen the witness that he will bring back to the world. He goes to pray. He goes to listen. A wise friend of mine once said, this passage describes what it's like to get your marching orders for the day. Very early in the morning, Jesus goes off to where it's quiet, where there's no distractions. And it's a time to listen, to pray, certainly, to offer our petitions, but to focus not just on, God, here's what I need you to do for me today, but God, I am your servant. What do you need me to do for the kingdom today? Not just what sign of the kingdom you can demonstrate for me, but how can I be a witness to the kingdom of God and the salvation of Jesus Christ wherever you send me? Is there time for that wilderness, that solitary wilderness, to strengthen the soul of our own witness, that we can be refreshed to re-enter and to be attentive to where God is calling us and sending us? Jesus, as my friend once said, is getting his marching orders for the day. Jesus models something for us in this, time away from it all. And that's hard to come by. And it was hard for Jesus, too. There were demands. There were desperate people looking for him. And yet, even in the midst of all this chaos, Jesus retreats and spends time with the Father in prayer, demonstrating something very important about our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Jesus needs to spend time in solitude to be refreshed. And to do so, he does move away from the crowds, the desperate multitudes who do truly need him. And he was sent to them, and he has compassion for them. Now, when Jesus goes off to his solitary place, it seems that even the disciples had to go look for him. He didn't even tell the disciples where he went. He was off the grid. No cell service, no nothing. And then, can you almost picture it? I don't know if you've had to return any Christmas gifts yet, but have you ever watched customer service employees when there's a long line and then something comes to them that they don't know how to fix, so all of a sudden, frantically, you know you need to find your manager? I worked customer service once. It's not a fun place to be. People get angry and desperate because they know that there's someone who can fix their problem and they need it fixed right now. And that was only in a hardware store. So you frantically look for your manager. The disciples kind of act like that. All of a sudden, the crowds are adding up. They're they're completely surrounded. And so they run out and they they play a quick game of hide-and-seek with Jesus that Jesus didn't actually invite them to play. And they find Jesus and they say, Everyone is looking for you. Everyone. There are problems that need to be fixed. There is healing that needs to take place. Everyone is looking for you. There's desperation in their voices. 
And what is Jesus' response? Let us go somewhere else. Somewhere else? But you're needed here. Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. For that is why I have come. Jesus doesn't leave the crowds because he lacks compassion, because he's about to demonstrate compassion to the man with leprosy. But Jesus knows with perfect clarity the purpose for which he is here. And he knows that right now, amidst the desperation and amidst the crowds, amidst the multitudes, he can't be fulfilling that purpose. Let us go somewhere else. So to the nearby villages so I can preach there also, because that is why I have come. Avoiding things isn't the answer. But with time with the Father, spending time in listening, discerning what is our purpose, what has God called us to today, to know our purpose with perfect clarity, allows us the discernment to know what do we need to stay with and what do we need to walk away from and go elsewhere. And Jesus knows this after spending time in a solitary place with the Father refreshing himself, and being reminded of the purpose for which he was sent. Our prayer life needs an element of that. Jesus doesn't leave things at random, but he leaves because he knows his purpose with perfect clarity. He's got his marching orders for the day, and he knows where he needs to go. But Jesus is not without compassion. They don't get very far, and a man with leprosy comes to him, and is begging him on his knees. These are not distant crowds. This is a person right in front of Jesus. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus is filled with compassion. I am willing. I am willing. And so Jesus reaches out and heals this man. Now, Jesus knows that even though he tells the man not to say anything, Jesus knows and we all know that that man is going to run off and pretty much tell everyone that he meets in the street. And even if he didn't, even if he did exactly what Jesus told him to do and just went and presented himself to the priest, the word would still get out. People would have to know, how were you healed of leprosy? There's no containing this good news. Whether it happens in the world or in the wilderness, word is going to spread. And so the man who is healed spills the beans, and he spills them abundantly. And as a result, as a result, the people come to him in droves. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in the lonely places yet the people still came to him from everywhere. He can no longer even enter a town because the word of what Jesus can do has spread so much that he can't even get close without being completely surrounded. And this is good news for many who will be healed. And Jesus will continue to teach in the synagogues as well. But it's that note of being in the lonely places that I want us to hold on to for just one more minute today. These lonely places are once again that same word for wilderness, heremos. In verse 25, 25, sorry, 35, Jesus is in the wilderness, the solitary places to be refreshed. In verse 45, Jesus is in the wilderness, but the type of wilderness that is a lonely, tiring place. And now the people still come to him from everywhere. Is there a way to shape your wilderness so that your wilderness can be a time of solitary places and not just lonely, tired places? There's something to be said for making sure our relationship with God has solitary places and not just the exhausting, lonely ones, but also in our interactions with the world. 
We ought to be filled with compassion as Jesus was. But there's also an element of making sure that our wilderness doesn't become just lonely places. That our desert, our wilderness, is a time for solitary as well. As we start this new year, how do we want to view Jesus? How do we want to spend time with him? If we believe that Jesus came to this world as a person, then there is a relationship to be had. And relationships take two-way streets of communication. Not just a lottery winner who we go to with requests, but a person who we need to spend time with, who we need to talk to, and who we also need to listen to, both in the Word and in prayer. May our wilderness be refreshing places that may strengthen our witness for the world. And may we follow Jesus knowing our purpose with perfect clarity to know when it is that we do need to just take a step away to find that beautiful wilderness that is a solitary place. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.